This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Love Doesn't Die. And the author is Angela Brent Harris. And Angela joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Angela. Hello. Great. Just really good to have you with us. Uh, this book is uh, an inspiration sharing your early childhood and your relationship with your dad and other family members. So we look at Love Doesn't Die, and as you put it, it's inspiring, it's spiritually enriched, it's a memoir of life in Jamaica. That has to be beautiful just by itself. Yes, oh, tremendously. <laughs> right, uh, kind of growing up in, in a paradise. Certainly. And then also your home was a bit of a paradise, the way you describe it. It, it certainly was. Some of my fondest memories are living in Jamaica and living in the home setting that I grew up in, um, my mom's garden, you know, alongside with my dad and um, his enthusiasm for jazz mingled with all of that, um, created a long-lasting um impression that lives in my heart forever of who I am today. Well, all of that led you to become, as you describe yourself, a peacemaker and a spiritualist. So how did that family life have such an impact on you? Well, it has an impact on me because um, from as long as I can remember, both my father and my mother instilled uh, spiritual lifestyle and my dad was also very religious as well and um, you know they always brought us up with a strong belief in God which also led us you know meet myself and um, my siblings um, to have a great self-worth of who we are of who you know we were as growing up as children and growing up to as young teenagers and adults and um, they were consistent in who they were and in all the beliefs and that they taught us my greatest guru was my dad so I learned a lot of spirituality from him I learned to meditate from him when I was about 17 years old and it never it never changed. It, he was just consistent. So it was very easy to admire him, to love him, to follow him in his footsteps in who he was um, and day to day. And it wasn't like, okay, today I'm doing this and tomorrow. He actually meditated every single day. And you know what? I did follow in his footsteps because I do meditate twice daily. And it has allowed me to not make things worry me I don't let little things bother me and um, you know what I feel free almost like a bird 
On right. top of all that, your father loved music. Yes, definitely. He was a jazz enthusiast. So He's you crazy. ended up so you ended up going to a lot of concerts with him. <laughs> yes. It was uh, magical for me. Um he played basically all the instruments, so it was quite easy for him going to the concerts and seeing him um vibrate with a love for the music, especially jazz, like um, like I was telling you before, and um, it was enjoyable. The type of instrumental music um, was um, something to behold for me. So you grow grow up in a home where the parents understand their responsibility. They understand that they need to have a positive influence on their children. They have to be examples. That that carries into many years of your life, that kind of an example. So as you look back on your dad and mom, do you remember a time when you didn't feel their love? I mean, was it always there? You know what? It is amazing that from, from as far as I can remember... I've never felt unloved or uncared for or unwanted. Even if I know I did something wrong and I got myself in trouble, um, I didn't feel like even if they were disappointed or upset with me, it, it's, you, you look into the eyes of my dad and you would see that tenderness and that love, but also you'd see like, I, like him talking with his eyes and saying, you know, I expected more from you. This is not... This is not the Angela I know. I, I expected you to do so and so. But then looking at him, you see that warmth in his eyes of love, but wanting so much for his children. And the same with my mom. She um, was a very, she's a very compassionate woman. And even if we did something wrong and she would get upset because she, she's a spicy one. You know, my dad was even keel and, and very soft. Um, but... No, she um, she was full of love, and you'd feel it. And after that, she would sit and always reflect or talk to you. You know, she would say, well, you know, you did this and you did that, and mommy feels this way, and so would my dad. They would sit with us and discuss. If we ever falter, um, they would reflect and talk with us about what we did wrong or um, how we could have done something differently. Your dad came from a large family. Oh, yes. came from a, a large family, indeed. And that had a, a great impact on him. Did he Was he raised in that same kind of family, strong family environment? Very much so. Um, he, both his parents were principals, and um, they were very strict, and they were also very loving, very caring, and they wanted the best for their children. And it showed later on because um, the type of, like, my father's eldest brother, um, he was a, a disciplinarian, but at the same time, he was so loving and um, so caring. And all the brothers and the sisters, um, you know, the, my uncles and aunts, were um, just the same. They grew up in that environment, positive, yet at the same time um, very strict. Especially, they they wanted um, 
my grandparents wanted their children to grow up to be somebody in this world, to be um, educated, and um, and that was important to them. And it trickled on. Yes, surely did. So you have to work at it. A family has to work at it. Oh, definitely. You have to work at it, and it it has to be consistent, um, like a, a chain. You know, it, uh, it it has to flow, and the links of the chain together stay in, in intact and um, continuously, one after the next, continuously going along without any breakage. What is your life like as a mother? My life, um. I am a spiritualist. I have two boys, two amazingly beautiful souls, and that's the only way I can describe it. When I was pregnant with um, both boys, and both of them were planned, which means that we um, planned the, the pregnancies, so they were um, brought in this world with love. Um, during both pregnancies, I only looked at beautiful things, listened to beautiful music like Chopin. So you know what? It shows because they are very soft gentlemen. Of course, if someone were to mess with them, you know, they have the, the instinct, the wolf instinct in them. <laughs> but um, as a mom, um, I'm very protective over my, my children, and I grew them up with a lot of love. I tell them daily how much I love them. The eldest is 22, and my youngest is 17. And I grew them up with warmth, but at the same time, I gave them the same... Um, Jamaican upbringing that I grew up the same way that I grew up and um, I instill that the love um, teaching them how to treat others how they want to be treated and um, it, it shows and I am very, and I feel very blessed with my sons today A lot of people blame others for their problems in life, that they're not happy, but you're pretty strong about only you can make you happy. You put the responsibility right on the individual. Oh, definitely. I believe that happiness is a choice. You see, you can have, you can be the poorest person with just a little room, living in a one-bedroom with a roof over your head, and you have, and you probably eat from hand to mouth so you, ha you have enough food to eat and yet you are this vibrant happy person because it's your choice to be happy and yet you can have the movie stars um, who live in mansions and they have 10 cars and chauffeurs and you know and everything and go to the restaurants daily and eat um, every kind of food take a, a, a jet private jet to some exotic island to eat some special food but yet, you know what, yeah, you can have those people who, they're unhappy, they want to end their lives, they don't feel good about themselves, they have to use drugs, they have low self-esteem. So I have seen that from time to time, especially as a first grade teacher, um, being in the schools and seeing all different type of lifestyles, knowing that happiness is a choice. It's not like, oh... I'm going to feel happy if I go out and buy this beautiful red dress. Probably you're going on to buy this dress and you get home. You still will feel just exactly the way that you choose to feel. So that's my philosophy. When did your dad pass away? Um, November 7th this year will be five years. Five years. Now there are friends 
colleagues who were intrigued with the way you dealt with your dad's passing. Tell us about that. What were you feeling, and how did you deal with it? I dealt with it in a way that I didn't even know that I would deal with it. Um, I have been spiritually stronger over the last decade, and alongside that, I've become even closer with my father over the years. Um, he has been a, a strong spiritualist, and so as I so been, we have been hearing our spirituality together, talking about it. I've been exploring Buddhism and um, Hinduism, and I'd share it with my dad and talk to him on a spiritual level. I would talk to him about um, lucid dreams, about um, being clear auditory, being able to read energies. And so with all of this, you know, I could speak openly about my spirituality, about the various gifts that I get from God that um, I'm able to help others. And I would ask him about it, and um, I would talk about it. Now, a year before he passed, he wanted to see me more, and he said to me, you know, he called me Chirpy, you know, because growing up, um, he said I was happy like a little bird, but, you know, he'd say, Chirpy, Angela, daddy's going home, and he didn't have to explain to me. Once he told me that, I said, hmm, I said, you really think that? But you seem fine, you know, and he wasn't sick that time. He didn't show any form of sickness. So I was like intrigued by this and got closer to him, even closer on a spiritual level and um, anything spiritual or religious wise, I would ask him for guidance and I would bring over the, the children to see him more often and um, and then when he started to have that pain and first I thought it was his appendix, I said, no daddy, probably it's your appendix. Because growing up, I didn't even see my dad as much as have a common cold. So I didn't think anything of it. He was in good shape and form, so I didn't think, oh, you know, he's getting sick. And for his age, he looked so, like, years younger than what his real age is. So I, I didn't even think of it. But on a soulful level, I felt like something something was wrong. And, I, and then um, we found out later that it, he had stage 4 colon cancer. And in the way in which he dealt with it, he wanted me to help him to prepare on his journey home, his, you know, and his only impeding worry or thought was about my mom. So basically it was me getting everything ready, getting ready um, to use my spiritual gifts that I had also to see his journey through um, with aromatherapy, um, the music when he got to hospice, and getting the getting the priest to come over to um, you know for his, the last rites and bless him and make sure um, almost like he's getting ready for a trip to on a vacation. But I believe so strongly in God and I'm so God fearing and with all that my dad was sharing with me, knowing that he really was was departing and um, I had to make sure I had my soul strong enough even though inside me my heart was was low because I didn't want to, to lose him but I know every time I'd ask him daddy when you go let me know that you're still with me when you're gone you know so he helped 
and along with being a spiritualist, it helped me to deal with it in such a way that almost seems so enchanting to me that um, if someone had asked me years ago, uh, um, oh, how are you, how would you, how are you gonna deal with when your dad passed or your mom passed? I would be like, I wouldn't even want to touch this subject, and I am still sometimes in awe with how this whole departure from this world went. Yeah. We've been listening to Angela Brent Harris. She's the author of her book, Love Doesn't Die, and she calls this book a magical journey of memories of her father and and the whole family of the values, the traditions, the strength of great parents, the effect they had on her and, and how that has helped her throughout her life. Tell us, Angela, what's the best way to get your book? Best way to get my book, you can get it from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iUniverse as well. Um, if you're local, you can get the book at in Florida. It's in Delray Beach. There's a beautiful, amazing store called Shining Through, and you can get a copy, um, hard copy, from them there as well. And um, that's basically uh, how you can get the book in both um in both hard copy format as well as um you know in the other um Kindle format as well. Thank you so much Angela for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, it has been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Reliable. Oh, no, it isn't called that. It's called Leader Reliability, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. And our author who joins me from Michigan, Jeff Dudley. Welcome, Jeff, to the program. Thanks, Jay. This is a book that a lot of uh, authors attempt to finalize or, or focus on about leadership. How did you come to write your book? What is your background that allows you to comment on this important topic? Well, Jay, I have 35 years of professional experience in the chemical industry, uh, but the, the interesting thing about my life is from a very little boy, I was, uh, I was put in leadership positions. I, uh, from a sports analogy, I uh, was a catcher on a baseball team, I was a quarterback on a football team, and uh, continued uh, to play uh, sports into my uh, college career. So I was in leadership positions, and then... Uh, 
ironically enough, when uh, when I started my career, I had uh, uh, my leader uh, when I first started working became ill, so I was thrown into a leadership position uh, in the first six months of my professional career. So leadership's always been important to me, and what I have done uh, in my professional career is try to grow other leaders. I think uh, that's what leaders really do is if they are being leaders, they don't create followers, they create other leaders. So my 35 years in the professional industry, but my lifelong uh, willingness and desire to lead uh, puts me in a position, I think, that I can write about this topic. I'll pose the question that comes up in Chapter 2. Uh, what makes it so hard? Why is leadership such a difficult thing for people to, to get a grasp of? Well, I think what happens is people try to, uh, to create followers. And I think what they do is they begin to manage. Hmm. And there's an incredible difference between managing and leading. Uh, managing, uh, the followers listen and uh, wait for you to tell them what to do. And leaders just enable their uh, employees and their colleagues and those who are around them to do their job uh, and more are a coach and mentor uh, and care more about the success of the, the people that are around them than maybe their own. And leaders, uh, real leaders, actually do set examples and sometimes are the hardest working people in the, in the, uh, in the system. Yeah, they're, they're uh, I think, a great, if, again, a great sports analogy. If you look at uh, most of the captains on uh, hockey, hockey teams, they're no doubt the, usually the hardest workers and spend the most time on the ice. And I think that's the same thing in the, in the professional world uh, in business is that uh, maybe behind the scenes, but there's uh, always lots of work going on. Jeff, what's your style of writing? Would you consider it uh, informational only, or is it uh, more conversational in your approach? I try to be more conversational. I try to pose questions, and, and then depending on the question I pose, sometimes I, I create my own answer. But uh, I, like to, uh, I like to engage uh, the reader and uh, have the reader feel like they're having a dialogue. One thing that's interesting about your title, and, and certainly one that I focused in on, was the uh, the aspect of reliability. There's more to leadership than just uh, standing on the sidelines and, and giving out uh, instructions, and, and as you've already mentioned. Reliability, how important is that, and why did you use that in your title? Well, reliability, my definition for reliability, and being in the, in the chemical industry, most people's definition for reliability is about assets and how assets work and things like that. But I really believe reliability is a people thing. My definition for reliability is to constantly and consistently meet your commitments. And so that's what people have to do. And when people begin to, to do that, uh, they do two things. One, they act like leaders. And two, uh, they minimize unplanned events around them. And so can you imagine working in a whole organization where everyone meets their uh, commitments all the time? Uh, haven't worked in one yet that everyone does, but I've worked in, uh, in a few that then helped to create a few where uh, the vast majority do, and it's, it's just a different way of working. I share with my listeners a little of the uh, anecdotal stories that you've included. One is about the Delta Corporation. What was that story about, and how did that relate to your book and your concept? Well, I am a, uh, a, a 
client or a uh, customer of Delta Airlines and uh, have have been back to the days when uh, before Delta merged with Northwest. And uh, I, I unabashedly say that I am a, a huge Richard Anderson fan. I uh, actually had the chance to meet uh, him and had a conversation with him. And his whole conversation was about reliability and how humans are a part of reliability and that that the equipment is only is typically designed to run. It's just uh, we humans intervene and cause it not to. So, uh, and being a uh, a customer of that airline, I have seen them grow and change. And you know the the interesting thing is the the world has too. Because if you go look at their uh, their stock price uh, two years ago and what it is today. Uh, it's just a testament of uh, a culture of reliability. In the professional world, you get the chance to have create the culture, but uh, typically it's either reliable, a reliable culture or a cost culture where people are cost conscious and cost cutting. The two can't live together. You know, uh, it's the great uh, quote by Abraham Lincoln that a house can't survive divided. And uh, I just, uh, I just think that. Uh, that company uh, sort of is is a role model to other uh, big asset-intensive companies on how to create a reliable culture. You've also highlighted the lives of some exceptionally well-known leadership, and you've also commented that they led cultural changes because they disagreed with all or part of the culture they were living in. This applies to business and to personal lives, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. When you... Uh firsthand if you go to try to change the culture of uh of anything you will meet resistance and you know the the few that i named were martin luther king jr and abraham lincoln and uh mother Teresa and the likes of those folks and you know when they uh when they wanted to change the culture and and the interesting thing for me is it typically takes one person to do it and I'll, what i tell the the folks that i teach about this topic is that uh, it only takes one other person. So you have to convince one other person that it's the right path to take, and you can begin to change the culture. But you will meet resistance. Culture change is a, is a hard job. It takes a long time. But you have to believe without a doubt that that's what you want to do. And, and if you do, it, it can happen. And I've had the pleasure of working in a few that, that really have. One of the items that you also highlight in your book is uh, the ability or the focus of prior prioritizing tasks and processes is there an easy way to do that or do you have a, a special way to accomplish that in your own personal management style yeah what what i think uh i think it is getting the input of others uh one of the one of the things that uh, we often do as leaders is think we have to come up with all the answers and mm -hmm. Really, what we have to do is ask the questions. Uh, my my leadership style is to engage the entire organization and and then uh, to find out uh, from them uh, what the issues are because they know what the issues are. Oftentimes, they're just never asked or or they're in a in a uh, managing situation where they're waiting for the the person who is their administrative leader to ask them the question and and they just. They give answers. They they don't give uh, their their opinions. Jeff, who is your leadership 
role model in your personal life, if you have one, or maybe corporate that uh, inspires you, and also your book. When you began to write it, who did you have in mind? Who did you think would, would really focus in and benefit from your experience? Well, I, I'll answer the second question first. I, the book is really written for folks who, uh, who have organizations or, or find themselves in a leadership position, uh, or they want to change the culture of the, the situation they're in to become more reliable. They, uh, and so, so that's who it's written for. But the interesting thing is, is that it also can help an individual change the way they do things. Uh, I think we all have our own personal culture that we create. And if there's something in your personal culture that, uh, that you would like to change, uh, the, the tenets of this book will help you do that. Uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the, to the uh, person who wrote, uh, wrote in the beginning of my uh, book uh, for me, and his name is Miles Martell. In fact, he, is, he is, was my mentor professionally and still is a very, very dear friend. Uh, he, uh, cool thing about Miles is he was the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, so uh, mm. he, he, he knew some very important people. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, he took me on uh, as a, uh, a mentee, and he was my mentor. And he's actually the, the person that convinced me to write this book. Uh, you know, I had lots of thoughts on how you ran, how you could run businesses and how you could create leaders. And uh, one day during a uh, mentoring session, he said, uh, you need to write the, a book and, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And that's mm. sort of where it started. Wow. Accountability is an important part of, of uh, any lifestyle, isn't it? It, it absolutely is, especially uh, leaders. Uh, when I when in the book, when I talk about accountability, there, I believe there are two types. There's uh, personal accountability and corporate accountability. And people who are corporately accountable say, "Yeah, I agree with what you're saying," and then they say, "Someone needs to do something." <laughs> uh, what leaders say is, uh, and who take personal accountability is, is, "I need to do something," and then they go do it. Yes, absolutely agree with that. Jeff, how long did it take to complete your book? 168 pages of uh, well, well, thought, well thought out. Well, I have uh, to give uh, the folks at iUniverse a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I, I put everything in, in a format that, that I thought was a good book, and through lots of good coaching and lots of, uh, lots of uh, just uh, understanding what I was trying to create, they, they helped me tremendously. But I would say the whole, uh, from from the inception of thinking about writing it to actually doing it, the process probably took me uh, somewhere around 18 months to, to 20 months to complete. Well, that's not too bad. Were there consequences? I mean, any challenges that you hadn't anticipated that you had to overcome? Yeah, the uh, the when I when I wrote the book and uh, and had my original chapter sequence uh, when when they when the folks at iUniverse did the content editing they said uh yeah we really really like this uh and this is really really good but we would move chapter six to chapter three and i can't remember exactly (laughs) what but when you move chapter six to chapter three chapter six no longer has four and five to create it so there was Mm. there was some significant rewriting going on but but the the rewrite was absolutely worth it and and it was uh it made a much better product are you inspired to write a a sequel or a follow-up to this well you know one of the interesting conversations i've had with the folks at iUniverse is they 
they really have said uh, uh, that uh, you know you could create this whole thing into a uh, to a self help book and and I really think you could and I even would have a title for it instead of leader reliability I would combine I'm great for making up words I'd call it your reliability <laughs> and uh, and maybe uh, when I uh, when I finally do retire I retired from uh, from the corporate corporation that I worked at and uh, started my own business and uh, and fortunate for me another uh, company actually acquired my business so now I'm Beautiful. doing a lot of work for them and uh, and they actually uh, use the content of this book in their uh, with how they help their customers and that's just a great thing that's another reason I wrote it I just want to help people but uh, you know when I finally do maybe uh, hang it up for for good I I think I'm you know it, it might be fun to do it again well congratulations on completing this leader reliability Jeff Dudley has been my guest from Michigan where leadership culture and profitability collide Jeff my listeners need to get a copy of this if they're in any kind of leadership how do they get one uh, it's very uh, very easy they can go to uh, the iUniverse website they can go to uh, amazon.com and uh, or they can go to Barnes and Noble and ask them to order it for them so that's uh, that's the places they can get it. Is there another place they can get in contact with you? Do you have a website? Uh, I do. It is called uh, Leader Reliability, the same title as the uh, as the book. dot com. So it's a it's an easy find. dot com or dot net. dot com. dot com. Excellent. Well, great visiting with you, Jeff. Uh, Listeners, get a copy of this if you have any questions about leadership or some uh, want some motivation. This is a book you will need to read. Leader Reliability. Jeff Dudley has been my guest. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me today. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old. Boy, I need to worry about that myself. My last name is Barker, so that's kind of, uh, well, never mind. How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. Our guest author who joins me from Georgia, Dr. Roger Rimmick. Thank you, sir, for joining me today, sir. 
My pleasure. This is an important read for people like me. I am getting a little older, I hate to admit it, but I uh, do worry about retirement, do worry about uh, things like lack of uh, good sustenance when I become older. In fact, I've had some relatives who were, there was a rumor that they were being mistreated and uh, maybe did even resort to eating dog food. I hate to admit that. They were not close relatives, but I'd heard that. Share where this book came from and a little of your background. Yeah, the title of the book actually came from the history of Social Security. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, heard in the early 30s when we were in the midst of the Great Depression that a lot of seniors and a lot of others were at the point where they were so desperate that uh, they were eating dog and cat food mm. in order to to get by. And, and that, at least anecdotally, and you never know about these things, you never but know. anecdotally that was the origin of the Social Security system in this country. It is increasingly becoming a problem, Jay, because unfortunately what is happening is that people are living longer, and in the traditional American way of thinking, they view retirement as a sprint rather than as a long-distance run. Right. And unfortunately, we hear all those statistics about the fastest-growing generation being those over 90. Wow. And now the statistics even show that if you have a couple that's 65 years old, there's about a 50-50 chance one of them is going to live to be 97. Incredible. Wow. That's I'm seeing some of these... I'm seeing some of these almost frightening things that say, with medical advances, if you make it through the next five years, there's an awfully good chance you're going to live to be over 100. I have bl- there are going to be a lot of people living to 110, 115. I have blamed, I have blamed that a lot on the preservatives in food. I, my wife is afraid of preservatives. I think they're a good thing it, uh, if you want to live long. Yeah, it, <laughs> medicine, modern medicine has done some absolutely incredible things. We're all being given thought processes that allow us to live longer. And unfortunately, and I tell this story a lot, uh, I live in a, in a what would be considered a reasonably affluent community. And yet, when I go to group dinners occasionally at our club, I I hear 75 and 80-year-olds talking about how very hard a time they are they are having making ends meet. There was a, a also a, a myth that Social Security would be the the way to survive and and do well in retirement, and that's just not the case any longer. Well, Social Security. <laughs> It's the administration itself of Social Security says Social Security should, on average, do 40% of the job. 40%. But with what's happened to rates of return on certificates of deposits and on bonds and other shorter-term instruments, what's happening is that Social Security is having to do more and more and more of the job. 
ironically, they actually have improved uh, Social Security benefits dramatically, and that's one of the most important mistakes I identify in my book is all the people who take Social Security too early. Mm. Uh, but even for those who take it later, it it shouldn't have to do all the job. And unfortunately, the statistics are that most people arrive at retirement with under 50000 in other savings. I, I ha- Having been self-employed most of my life, I can relate to that latter uh, discussion or la- latter illustration you've given that uh, financially it's difficult to save when you are, let's call it self-employed, and challenged uh, to uh, pay the bills every month. If you do arrive at Social Security retirement age, what is your recommendation for someone, and how do they get through the next few years, maybe to 97? Well, a lot, number one is always get the most out of your Social Security. The But among the others, one of the ones that that I so often point out to people is people take money out of their IRAs mm-hmm. way too young. And IRAs are, I, I liken IRAs to the golden goose in that, in that historic fable. You know, I, one of the things I learned very early when I was in school was about the golden goose and, and the master who cut the golden goose open to get more than one golden egg per day. <laughs> they wound up with nothing. Well, draw money out of your IRA too early is akin to that. The idea that I think a lot of people are going to have to draw on, and I believe the common logic is just totally wrong as a mathematician and a tax person, it relates to home ownership, though. Hmm. The concept of you got to have a paid-for house when you retire right. uh, is probably wrong. Really? I guess In I... this day and age, with with the nature of interest rates, et cetera. And I am absolutely convinced, because I've done a lot of mathematical analysis on it, that all of the negative literature on reverse mortgages is, as some people would say, poppycock. Hmm. It's wrong. You know, what they're doing, Jay, is they are comparing a reverse mortgage to a traditional mortgage. And a traditional mortgage is going to be less expensive than a reverse mortgage. Right. And reverse mortgages 10 years ago were very, very expensive, and I would never have recommended it. But if you could get a traditional mortgage at 4% and a reverse mortgage would cost you 6%. Correct. That sounds like that's high. But it's but if you consider the alternatives, it may be a decent. For example, if it allowed you not to take your Social Security at 62 and take it at 70 because you were taking money out of a reverse mortgage, you would have 76% more income from Social Security at 70 hmm. than at 62. And another one is that the tax rules these days are so unfavorable. I have senior clients who, between their Social Security and their other things, 
meet pretty much the Social Security standard, which is you need 75000 for a couple to live. And if you get 30 of it from Social Security, the other 45 has to come from somewhere. Right. If it comes from IRAs, working, anything that is fully taxable, then you probably have 75 come in, but you have to pay 10 or 11 out. True. So you only wind up with 65 or a little bit less. Whereas if part of it is coming out of a reverse mortgage, it may be that you have 75 coming in and you pay two or 3,000 in taxes, and now you pretty much have 72 or 73,000 to live off of. Interesting. And if you consider it from that point of view, that a reverse mortgage is a tool to allow you to either draw, delay drawing Social Security or delay drawing out of your IRAs or simply to pay less taxes, then I think reverse mortgages make a lot more sense than most people understand. And I, what I, I think when people like myself present the mathematical analysis, to me as a mathematician, it's it's very simple. It's a good idea for a lot of people. You would think that's... They're not going to have any choice. You, you think that's probably the hottest item right now for people who are considering retirement then, or have the ability well, to do... Well, it should be the hottest item. should be. Okay. I don't know that it is, Jay, because the unfortunate fact is that the naysayers talk louder than the advocates, and most of the advocates are salespeople, so they lack credibility. Ah, uh, that's true. You need people like myself who are not selling a reverse mortgage, don't have anything to do with a reverse mortgage, other than saying this is an alternative you should consider to allow you to have enough cash flow to live in retirement. I think you get a very different answer. You also you also touch on Medicare and some strategies there. What is different about your approach to Medicare and supplements? Well, there's there's nothing so much different about my approach to Medicare than the experts. The problem is what people actually do, Jay. People, less than 10% of the people buy a Medicare supplement. Right. People try to get by on the cheap for Medicare. And that is very painful over time. They wind up paying a lot of expenses. And those of us who do buy a Medicare supplement, in my case, when I hit 65, my total all-in medical costs were about three for Medicare Part B right. and for my Medicare supplements and for my Medicare drugs were about $300 a month. Hmm. That's way less than when you, especially if you were self-employed, paying 10 or 1100 a month. That's true. Uh, but it's way less than most people were paying, even in their corporate world, for their health insurance prior to retirement. But people don't think that way, Jay. What they do is they say, oh, now I'm retired. How can I get by for the least possible? And a lot of people, the the, the largest number of people just have Medicare A and B, which means they have all those deductibles. They dare not get sick because if they get sick, you know, it could be 
ten thousand all all the way up to Ouch. six figures. Ouch! In terms of medical expenses a year, with my three hundred dollars and my Medicare supplements, and it's been several years now, I still can't get used to the idea when I go to the doctors. And they always rot you by the exit uh-huh. so you can pay. I can't get used to that I don't have to stop there. Phenomenal. Because I don't know it. I don't know anything. Don't know anything. And the, the people at the billing station always laugh at me. They say, by now <laughs> you still haven't figured out you don't have to pay anything. <laughs> you have a good plan then, obviously. Yeah, it's a good plan. But like I say, my total all-in cost is roughly $300 a month. Not too bad, especially compared to traditional insurance coverage, for sure. You have one chapter, Early Birds Don't Get the Worm. What is that topic related to? Well, that's really related to drawing Social Security too early. It's to taking money out of your retirement accounts too early. Uh, When you have money that's working hard for you, which Social Security is, and which your IRAs hopefully are because of the tax advantages, that should be the last money that you access. But it's hard for people because what should be the first money is the excess amount that they keep in money markets and in CDs. But it's hard for people to understand that by taking that money first, they don't pay any taxes on that money. They've already paid the taxes, and they weren't earning anything on that money. The double whammy with taking IRAs too early is you have to pay taxes, and you lose the earnings that were way better than your money market earnings. True, true. And Social Security, since... Between 66 and 70, it grows at 8% a year. That's a lot better earning rate than they have on their money markets. So they hoard their cash and use up their Social Security and their IRAs, and that's a very bad decision. Would you describe your book as one that's pretty simple to read for even people who don't understand complex issues? Yeah, the I had help from a very good editor who, quite frankly, made my book a lot more readable. <laughs> my my book was probably a little bit like mathematician consultant All right. prior to David's help, but David did a terrific job of helping me. You've done a great job explaining it in 12 chapters, 12 uh, short, distinct, and uh, pointed chapters, 196 pages. The title of the book, again, is Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old, How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. Uh, my guest joining me from uh, from uh, Georgia has been uh, author Roger Remick. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where do my listeners get a copy of your book, sir? Uh, best place is probably Amazon.com. They also do a, a search under your name, Roger and Remick is spelled R-O-E-M-M-I-C-H. And uh, Dr. Remick, thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. This is an important book for anyone who's thinking they might want to retire someday, or if they already are in retirement, they can pick up some great tips that will help them through the uh, retirement years, maybe to age 170. Who knows? <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> we hope so. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. 
Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.